I have never heard of holistic plastic surgery in my life. So when I was approached to have this doctor on as a guest on this podcast, I said, you do know that this is a holistic health and wellness podcast, right? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, They use it as a last resort. So I said, okay, that's interesting. At first, I was very, very skeptical. All I heard was plastic surgery. I didn't even consider any other aspects. So my next guest is going to be telling us all about holistic plastic surgery, skincare tips, what to look out for, should you absolutely need to have plastic surgery, services that they offer, and tips that can help you reverse the aging process. Here's the intro. Welcome to the Avi Unfiltered Podcast. This is Avishai L, your host, holistic health coach, and lifestyle expert. In this podcast, we're going to be interviewing top health experts as well as talking to holistic healers, spiritual healers, and just helping you with everyday life. Each episode is going to be extremely fun. And as I always say, bring a green juice because it's going to be very juicy. My next guest is a board-certified plastic surgeon, award-winning author, and anti-aging expert, He's considered to be one of the nation's best-known experts in looking younger with or without surgery. His motto is true beauty is holistic. He can be seen from time to time sharing his holistic plastic surgery tips on shows such as The Rachel Ray Show, The Doctors, The Dr. Oz Show, Fox and Friends. He has been featured on Dr. 90210. Today, Good Morning America, the CBS Morning Show, CBS Morning Show, The O'Reilly Factor, and more. His bestseller is The Age Fix. A leading plastic surgeon reveals how to really look ten years younger. And his most recent book is Playing God. Welcome, Dr. Anthony Yoon, to the Avi Unfiltered Podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Avi. Yes, thank you so much for coming on the Avi Unfiltered Podcast, Dr. Yoon. So what made you want to be a plastic surgeon? Um, Well, this happened quite a few years ago. Uh, I was basically, (laughs) the day I was born, my parents decided I was going to be a doctor. So I had this idea growing up that I was going to be a doc and I really wanted to do something to help people. But I didn't really know what it was that I wanted to truly do. And I thought, well, maybe I'll be a general surgeon just because I thought I liked working with my hands. Uh, my my dad wanted me to because he is a first generation Korean American. He uh, grew up on a rice farm in Korea, and him being a doctor literally pulled his whole family out of poverty. And so for him, he thought, oh, my son's going to be this high powered surgeon, this cardiac surgeon, neurosurgeon, transplant surgeon. But I knew it just wasn't for me. And one day when I was a medical student. Uh, I met this small uh, child um, that really, and she really changed my life. Uh, This was a young baby who was left in a bassinet. Parents went to the bar and left the baby in a bassinet in the same room as their pet raccoon. And you can guess that when they came home, bad stuff had happened. The raccoon had actually eaten part of this baby's face. Oh, my God. It's crazy. So I I was on call as a medical student spend the night in the hospital seeing patients and the pediatrician I was working with got called to see this patient and you know this horrifying sight and I waited for the plastic surgeon to come in and you know at a baby that age I mean it was she was a small baby at the time 
there's nothing you can really do, but he took the time to kind of explain to me as the baby aged how 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 this baby's face can be reconstructive, reconstructed. And at that point, I was hooked and um, decided at that point that I wanted to be a plastic surgeon. Wow, that's an amazing story. How did you feel uh, looking at the baby's face? I mean, it was horrifying. As a as a student, I had never seen anything like that before. And even as a you know plastic surgeon now and practice for 15 years, I'm sure if I were to encounter something like that, it would be the same type of kind of horrifying reaction. Um, but you know, there's hope in everything. And and you know, with time, the interesting thing this this was many many years ago. I mean, I was a medical student. I've been in practice 15 years. So I mean, you're talking 20-ish years ago. And um, since then, the child actually has grown into a young, uh, pretty young woman, and uh, she's had a lot, a lot of surgeries. I actually only saw her as a medical student. And then many, many years later in my area in Metro Detroit, she was featured on um, newspaper articles because she came to a, a hospital in this area. I didn't treat her because I don't do that type of surgery anymore. Um, but uh, telling her story and her inspiring story of how she's a... a active young woman uh who you know feels great and uh, it's just this really just good person who's overcome what really is a pretty i mean horrifying injury i'm so glad to hear that i'm over here in <laughs> tears tears of joy i'm so happy for her <laughs> i'm so happy for her um so you say you don't do surgeries like that anymore is that the reason why was it too hard for you to do heart too heart-wrenching um, no, I think with what we found in the field of plastic surgery nowadays is that we all um, subspecialize, and there are people who do a lot of training in that type of maxillofacial reconstruction. They're really the best ones to do it. Now, if I were to go to a third world country where you know maybe kids don't have any access to a surgeon, you know, could I potentially do stuff like that? Yeah, it's just that you know now in our in our uh, medical system nowadays with plastic surgery there aren't a whole lot of jack-of-all-trades plastic surgeons anymore. Most of us are concentrating on either cosmetics or burn surgery or breast reconstruction after cancer, you know, those types of things. We all specialize in something different. Oh, I see. I see. That's awesome. So so what is holistic plastic surgery? So holistic plastic surgery is this idea that I have um, come up with after, you know, I, I did my training and, and my book, Playing God, goes through kind of this whole idea of how do you go from these old fashioned surgeons of yesterday, the ones where the saying in, in traditional surgery is to cut is to cure. And there's another saying, uh, the only way to heal is with cold steel. And so there's this idea in traditional surgery that cutting and going to the operating room is the pinnacle. That's what you want to do. And that's how I was trained. Uh, and so I was trained like that as, you know, as far as being a plastic surgeon, if, if that's what, you know, you, you, you see a patient, you operate on them. So I uh, started my private practice about 15 years ago in Metro Detroit. And I was, got very, very busy and really got to the pinnacle of where I thought I'd really reached, where I had patients traveling from all around the country to see me. I had patients traveling internationally. I was operating three days a week. And I had this patient, Avi, who really changed the trajectory of where I went with my career. And this was a woman who came in to see me. She was in her late 50s, early 60s, and 
she said, you know what, uh, Dr. Yun, all my friends, they've all had a bunch of work done. We hang out together and I'm the only one that, that hasn't. And I feel invisible because all the guys look at them and nobody looks at me. And, and this is something that I hear a lot from women as they get older. And she said, I just, I feel like I'll, if I had a facelift, that that's what's going to get me kind of like all my other friends in my, you know, and feeling better about myself. So I said, okay, you know, I looked at it, I'm like, yeah, you know, you look like physically a reasonable candidate. Let's, let's do it. That's fine. So I bring in a surgery. The surgery goes just fine, three and a half hours. And I'm driving back from the hospital to my office and my pager goes off and it's a pager that's 911, meaning that bad stuff is happening. The nurse says, you've got to get back here immediately. Your patient is bleeding. Oh, no. So I get back, I rush back to the hospital. <clears throat> I, you know, I uh, stop my car in front of the hospital. I run up the stairs, uh, run into her room, and I don't see my patient sitting there. I see somebody who resembles Jabba the Hutt. Her neck had filled up with so much blood that, it, that she was on the verge of actually suffocating from the pressure of all that blood in her neck. Oh, my goodness. So I grab a pair of gloves, not even sterile. I take a pair of scissors, and I cut all of her sutures out. I stick my hand underneath her skin of her neck and I'm pulling out huge clumps of blood as her husband is watching. I rush her to the operating room. I stop all the bleeding, clean everything up, lift her neck again and everything and put everything back together. And the great thing is, is that two, three weeks later, you couldn't even tell that she had had this complication. But it did really burn this hole in my psyche of, of here I am at the top of my career operating on so many people and am I really doing the right thing? Is there a better way? And so what I started doing is learning more about things that I was never really taught in my training about how your nutrition impacts your appearance, how clean skincare can make a huge impact on how you look. And I really started getting into researching all the new non-invasive and minimally invasive technologies that are being used by holistic physicians and dermatologists and so that's where the whole idea of holistic plastic surgery comes from. And so essentially what holistic plastic surgery is, is it's looking at a patient as a complete person, not as a procedure, and trying to encourage them to do those things that they can do on their own, like eat the right foods, use clean skincare, try non-invasive and minimally invasive options, and really using actual surgery as an absolute last resort. That's that's awesome. Actually, when uh, when someone had approached me about you coming on the Avi Unfiltered podcast, all I had heard was plastic surgery, and I was like, "It is a holistic health and wellness." And then they're like, "No, no, no. He uses it as a last resort." I was like, "Oh, he sounds very interesting." So I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely. I want him on the show." Well, I was like, you. "I never heard of this." And I think I think you're an amazing doctor. I really do. That's awesome what you're doing. Um, well, thank you. I, and part, yeah. part of it's trying to spread the word so that people know. I mean, you know, unfortunately, there are so many people out there who are just so surgery and procedure obsessed. And they're, and really the first step is improving your health and getting your health there. Because, you know, I get so many people who come to see me, they have money in hand for a facelift, but their skin looks terrible and they're smoking and they have a horrible diet. And it's like, you know what, save that money. Let's get you looking and feeling better first. That's so important to definitely, like you said, to work on the mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual aspects, or the, the emotional aspects, I should say, and spiritual beforehand, you know, like you said, definitely. doing 
doing non-invasive treatments, do you love yourself? Are you just getting this for, you know, vain purposes? Or is there something, you know, we can tweak, like you said, non-invasive treatments? Uh, exactly. When is when is it necessary, like absolutely necessary for someone to have plastic surgery? Um, when it's necessary, there are certain things, unfortunately, that creams won't do, lasers won't do, even injections won't do. And I think the easiest, the, the one that's most obvious as a surgeon is when we have excess skin, too much skin. So for example, people who lose l large amounts of weight and they have skin hanging off their tummy, their arms, their thighs, you know, it doesn't matter what you eat, it doesn't matter what you put on your skin, that skin's gonna be there. And that's where unfortunately the only real option to get rid of that is to cut it out. We see the same thing in women who've had multiple children and they develop loose skin hanging from their tummy. Uh, and some women, you know what, they're fine with it and they like it and it's a badge of where they've been and by all means, it's great for them. And that's, you know, no, I would never encourage them to have surgery. But there are other women where they've had that and the skin is hanging, they have a hard time exercising, the muscles have been stretched out, they get hernias and things. And so for some of them, undergoing a surgery like a tummy tuck can be a life-changing decision for them. Um, but really that's what you look at is when there's excess skin, when skin is hanging, there's nothing else that we can do unfortunately but, but surgically remove it. Now I'm glad you brought up uh, removing excess skin because I wanted to ask for people who have lost a lot of weight and they still have skin hanging from their arms, is there a way to, when they get you know surgery and they have those sutures in there, is there a way for that scar to disappear or will they have a scar no matter what? So unfortunately there's no way to make any scar disappear. Um, scars are always permanent and they never completely disappear. Uh, that being said, uh, everybody scars a bit differently. Uh, so people who are in general older, and by older I mean 60s and 70s, they tend to scar usually really well. And I think it's because they don't have as much collagen in the skin. The skin gets thinner as we get older. Um, younger people, uh, people with darker skin colors, often have a higher risk of a darker and a thicker scar. Some people ask, you know, they say, Dr. Yoon, they ask me, do you think that you'll be able to perform surgery without scars in the future? That I don't think we're going to be able to do, but what, what my hope is is that in the future we'll be able to have scar treatments that can potentially make that scar disappear or at least really, really minimize it. Because right now we, we don't have a whole lot. Um, even lasers, which we treat with you know scars with, they, they, never, they don't work on everybody. Um, they, we just don't have a way to, to get a faint, fine line scar on everybody. It's just we don't have that ability to control the body's response, um, at least as of yet. I see. I see. So what non-invasive treatments can people do for the health of their skin? Because I know you're the um, anti-aging expert. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. Yes. No, that's, there's a lot of options. I think the first thing that I would recommend uh, is to get on good, uh, clean skin care. So there's a lot of products out there that, um, you know, the, the FDA only has banned upwards of, I think, like a dozen different ingredients here in the United States because they're potentially toxic. Whereas in the EU, you're talking over a thousand. So the wow. problem right now with skincare is that there are a lot of skincare companies that use things that use ingredients that are potentially dangerous. Some of these are potentially carcinogenic. Others of them could be hormone disruptors. Um, and so the first thing would be to get on good, clean skincare. 
there are a lot of organic, uh, natural and organic brands out there. I have my own called Yoon Beauty, um, and it's natural and organic with active components in it. But that's the first step. Second thing would be to exfoliate your skin a couple of times a week if you have normal skin, once a week if you have sensitive skin. And you can exfoliate many, many different ways. Some people will use like a fine scrub. Uh, we have one in my skincare line. Uh, other people will use like a Clarisonic type of a rotating brush. And then some people may use like an enzymatic type of a chemical peely type of thing that they can do at home. And then the third thing that I would recommend would be to look into low light, I'm sorry, not low light, red light uh, therapy. Uh, red light is something that's become real big now in holistic health um, where we're, we are finding that this uh, red light, the infrared light, can really help to impact the cells of the skin and help to rejuvenate them and even reduce inflammation. That's awesome. I have to try red light therapy. I've never tried that. I, I have a skincare line as well. I have to try yours. I would love to try. I love trying different ones. Um, yeah. Mine is obvious skincare. But I wanted to, um, the red light therapy. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so red light therapy is something that is being used more and more, um, and people are adding it to like uh, infrared saunas uh, that has red light therapy. We're still really learning exactly what benefits they give. There are some studies that do appear to show that people who use red light therapy uh, find that their skin looks younger, uh, that the collagen may be a little bit thicker with red light therapy than without. Um, and, uh, and we're finding now that the actual color of the light that impacts the skin can make a big difference. Uh, for example, on top of that, we've been using blue light therapy for many years for people who have acne because we know that blue light can kill bacteria, the same bacteria that can lead to acne breakouts. Um, but if you're looking at truly anti-aging, then red light therapy is the way to go. And there are certain companies, uh, one of them, I don't have any financial interest in these right now, uh, Sunlighten has one. Uh, there's another company called Juve, J-O-O-V, I think, that has a red light therapy device. Uh, the negative with, with these uh, handheld home devices is that they're not cheap. You are paying several hundred dollars for it. Uh, the good thing is is that you know you don't pay to go to a doctor's office and, and all of that. This is something you just do in the comfort of your own home. Now, do you perform any procedures like Botox or because that's a that's always been popular, you know, Botox. I don't necessarily get it, but I was just wondering if you perform any procedures like that or what do you recommend? Yeah, we actually do a lot of those types of things. Uh, and it's not for everybody. It's interesting, Avi. Um, I know a lot of holistic health practitioners, and I tell you, so many of them get Botox. They do? Oh, my gosh, so many. <laughs> And they're, you know, they may not admit it to their followers. They may not admit it to their other friends, but they know. They know I'm not going to judge them because we do a ton of it in my office. Um, I so yes, there's a lot of them that have it. A lot of them, I watch their videos and I can see their Botox or their filler, but but the average person may not may not be able to catch it. But anyways, we do a lot of Botox is is great, um, specifically for wrinkles of the upper face. So the horizontal wrinkles of the forehead, the what we call the 11 sign, the frown lines between the eyebrows, and the crow's feet wrinkles can all be effectively treated with Botox. Um, it is a toxin. It, you know, when you think about it, it's kind of scary. It's the most one of the most powerful toxins in the world, poisons basically. Um, people can die if you inject too much botulinum toxin, but Botox is in a such a tiny, minuscule amount that if you inject it into 
certain muscles of the face that create wrinkles, it causes those wrinkles to, to relax and basically smooth. And Botox is quite addictive because usually within three days to a week, you see the results and, uh, and it's quite impressive. Is there another option instead of Botox to get rid of wrinkles? Um, for those types of wrinkles, it's tough. There is a patch that some people uh, try. Um, i trying to remember it. There, it's um, called Frownies. And these are little uh, kind of adhesive paper patches that some people try. by. They'll wear it overnight over their wrinkle areas. And right. what they do is they basically splint your wrinkles. And what essentially you're doing is you're training your muscles not to create those lines. Um, so they're called frownies. They're not expensive. You can buy them like on Amazon. I have, once again, no financial stake in this company. Uh, but that's a way for people to try to train their themselves not to create certain um, facial expressions that, that will make wrinkles deeper. It's interesting. There was a um, rumor back in the day that Elvis Presley forbade Priscilla Presley from, Priscilla's the wife, yeah, because the daughter is uh, Lisa Marie, yeah, so Priscilla from lifting her eyebrows up and creating wrinkles of her forehead. I don't know if it's true, <laughs> but but technically that's what it accomplishes, these brownies, is they just, they splint your wrinkles, typically you wear them overnight, and the idea is to train yourself not to, not the, train those muscles not to, to contract so much. So the goal, the holistic goal for everyone is to start eating healthy now, boost your nutrition, say positive things to yourself, definitely boost your immunity, do some essential oils so you can avoid <laughs> getting wrinkles and the Botox later on. <laughs> exactly. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I tell you, I, I can tell when I have patients come in to see me within looking at them for 20 seconds, I can tell you what type of diet they eat whether yeah. they've taken care of their skin, if they're a smoker. I mean, it's very obvious when you look at people's skin. So how you live your life makes a massive impact on how your skin looks and how old you look. Exactly. Much agreed. Um, so I did want to ask, because I hear people who have gotten uh, breast augmentations, they talk about the different types of uh, silicone and other materials, which I'm not that familiar with. But for instance, if someone... Um, uh, had a mastectomy, what kind of, and they were getting a breast augmentation, obviously, um, what kind of uh, implant would you use for them? Um, you know, there's a lot of different implants out there right now. Um, now, silicone is what's typically used nowadays. We don't use saline very much, mainly because of the difference in um, the result. Uh, silicone does look, does look and feel so much more natural that the vast majority of patients choose to go that way. The big thing to keep in mind with breast implants are two major things um, that your audience, some of them may have heard of, some of them may have not, but it is really important if they're thinking at all about implants or have implants to be aware of. The first thing is that um, implants can come in either smooth shell or a textured or sandpapery type surface shell. The sandpapery surface textured shell are the uh, traditionally known as the gummy bear implants. And those sandpaper textury surface have been implicated as being uh, potentially causative of a certain type of cancer. So a cancer called ALCL, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, is a cancer of the scar tissue surrounding textured breast implants. It's very rare. There's been upwards of 500 cases in the United States that are confirmed out of millions of people with breast implants. But as of what we know 
as of now, every single case has been related to a textured breast implant. So for those of your listeners who have maybe a textured breast implant, definitely be aware of it. If you have any questions about it, you should talk to your plastic surgeon. There doesn't appear to be any correlation with a smooth implant. So if, if you know somebody has breast cancer and they're going to have a reconstruction done, I would recommend going with the smooth implant because the last thing you want to do is treat a breast cancer and then have to later on deal with a different type of cancer due to the implant. And then the exactly. second thing of, second thing that's very important for your uh, audience to know of is something that really has not been acknowledged by plastic surgeons in the last several decades, um, but is becoming more and more, um, more and more, I think, acknowledged as a true entity. And that's something called breast implant illness. And I do think that there's a small percentage of women who just don't react well to breast implants. We think it's probably more often with a silicone implant, although there are some uh, women that feel that their saline implants have made them sick. But there's a constellation of symptoms ranging from hair loss to fatigue to muscle aches to joint aches to rashes. Uh, and in a good percentage of women who have in breast implants, when those symptoms can you know cannot be you, diagnosed, you know a, a source of it. Those implants are taken out, and, and a good number of them seem to get better. So something that you should be aware of if you're thinking about breast implants. My recommendation is if you've got breast implants and you feel great, and you know, then you don't necessarily have to take them out, okay? Because I don't think this impacts everybody. Um, but definitely if you're thinking about having breast implants done, something to learn a bit more about. Now, um, that, that was excellent advice. What, what kind of testing or do you have your patients get tested to see if they're a good candidate for certain implant types? Um, there really isn't a test that you can do. Um, as far as the types, there really are saline and silicone. Now, the, saline, the silicone implants come in different types of thickness of silicone and stuff like that. And, you know, those are things that we talk about with the patients. But, you know, the only real testing that we do, blood testing, because you can't test for uh, breast implant illness or anything like that. Um, the only real tests we do are the tests to make sure that they're a good candidate for surgery. So checking their blood, their blood counts, making sure they don't have a urinary tract infection, getting an EKG to make sure that, you know, that their heart will tolerate surgery, those types of things. I see. So have you ever refused a patient who just wanted breast implants just because they just wanted breast implants? They didn't necessarily need it. Yeah, I actually turned down, um, about one out of every five people that come to see me for various reasons. And one of the reasons is, is that uh, not everybody is a good candidate for it, you know? And sometimes people think, you know, they're just, they're not in the right position for it. Um, it's just not necessarily right for everybody. And breast implants are something too, that's a huge, huge decision to make. Uh, I get some people to say, hey, I'm gonna, I'm thinking about tummy tuck and while, while we're there, let's just put in some breast implants. Well, no, that's not what you do while you're there. You maybe would take a mole off or something, but, but breast implants are a huge decision to make. They're not a, by the way, let's just do it since we're there type of surgery. Yeah, definitely. Um, have you come across anyone where plastic surgery was not going to be helpful besides, you know, the breast implants, any other surgeries? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's one from my new book, Playing God, that was, and I can tell you it's an interesting story. Um, there are people who have a disorder called body dysmorphia, and probably the most you know, famous person that I think had body dysmorphia, or BDD, is Michael Jackson. And it's this condition where you look in the mirror and you see something different than everybody else sees. So for example, um, 
I had a patient who came in to see me, uh, and I was early in my practice. This is from my my new book, Playing God. And um, I just started going in my practice, and she came to see me. She's a woman who was in her late 50s, and she, she'd had a facelift done by another doctor and a couple other things, and she was profoundly unhappy with her results. And it turns out that that doctor wasn't even a real plastic surgeon, um, and she had some not great results. And so she came to see me, and she was... She was sad, and she was tearing up and, and crying at times. And said, "I just," she said, "I, I had the surgery, and I don't know how he duped me so and, and did this, and now I look so terrible." And, and I looked at her, I thought she looked fine, but I mean, I guess we could tighten her neck a little bit, and maybe remove a little more skin from her eyelids. But overall, she looked pretty good. But I felt bad for her because she said, "Look, I, my husband won't look at me anymore. I've lost oh, no. out on job promotions because of this." And, and can you, and, and, you know, look what he did to me. He's ruined my life. And at the time I was young in practice, I was naive. And I said, well, yeah, let me see what I can do for you. And so it almost, it was almost pro bono. We charged very, very little for it, basically just to, to make up for not losing any money on it. And I brought her to surgery and performed just, you know, about three or four hours of surgery to kind of fix things up basically. Well, she came back to see me at a week and everything looked like it was healing fine. At three weeks, it was looking fine. Then about five, six weeks later, she called and said, I need to, I need to see somebody else because of what Dr. Yoon did to me. And I thought, well, what's going on here? I just started my practice, so I was, you know, confidence was not super high at the time. <laughs> and so I said, well, why don't I send you to a friend of mine? He's the chief of plastic surgery at the hospital I work at, and he'll take a look at you. So she comes in uh, a week later, roaring in, like comes into my office screaming, screaming that I that she was botched that she was botched and and I said well what did the other doctor tell you and she said he he said that I'm a train wreck and he would never say that like I, I know him I'm friends with him to this day and it was a lie like he'd never say that and you yeah. look at her and she looked great like anybody would look at her and say wow you look fantastic there's nothing wrong her scars are healing perfectly but she was so angry with me that she starts threatening me and she said Dr. Yoon if you don't pay me one million dollars I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy your reputation. And I said, I don't have a million dollars. Like I literally had, (laughs) my bank account was negative money because I had so much debt. And then she said, so she brings it down. She was $150,000 or I'm going to destroy you. And I go, I don't have that money either. And then she said, so then she goes, carte blanche. You, You pay for any surgery I want from any other doctor, carte blanche for the next three years to fix what you've done to me. And I said, well, I can't do that either. So she starts screaming that I made her look oriental. <laughs> she used the term oriental, which oh, no. she didn't. And she starts <laughs> screaming that she's a monster. She's and literally running around my office screaming, I'm a monster, I'm a monster, look what you did to me. And uh, my, my employees are freaking out. I'm just like dumbfounded, like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? And so this woman had bidysmorphic disorder and... And anything I said just got her more and more angry. So she really hit a pinnacle when she said, she goes, I'm going to, and I said, look, why don't I give you back all the money that you paid me, you know, and, and all I need to do is I'll have you sign a release and then we'll be done. Like, and here I'll give you all. And I said, and in fact, I'm going to give you the money that you paid the hospital too, which never went to me. So essentially I ended up paying her I said, I'll pay you for the operation. You'll have it done for free. I just had to get her out of my life at that point because here she is like screaming at me and threatening me. Yeah, to so, me it sounds... Oh, go ahead. No, so then, 
<laughs> so I said, but I need to have, before I give you this check, I need to have you sign a release so that, because last thing I'd do is pay, give her all her money back, then have her still come after me, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So she goes, this is all you're going to pay me? And she goes, who do you think you, who do you think I am? One of the whores that you operate on back in Beverly Hills? And oh. I go, oh my gosh. And she starts running in my office screaming, the whores, the whores. I'm going to send you back to the whores. So I am this point, like, am so traumatized and I don't know what to do. And she goes, I'm not taking your money and, and your dirty money and I'm going to destroy you. And she leaves my office. My staff runs up, they lock the door and they go, oh my God, you know, what if she has a gun and this and that. And um, a few minutes later, she comes back pounding on our door. I slink towards the door to make sure it doesn't have, literally have a gun because I didn't even tell her she was threatening to hit me with her car too. She was oh, so wow. angry. And um, so I open the door. She rushes in. She signs the release, takes a check, and, and storms out the door and says, this is not over. And it turns out, I mean, what happened is, is that this woman, poor woman, had body dysmorphic disorder. You know, what she saw in the mirror was completely different than what you or I would see. And right. so you or I may look at her and we go, wow, she looks fantastic. For her, it's like a carnival funhouse mirror version of herself. And so she ended up seeing other plastic surgeons. I had a colleague of mine who I had referred her to, a different one, and he talked to me later, and he goes, Tony, she is crazy. That was... <laughs> But there are these patients out there, and the problem with body dysmorphic disorder is that they're not crazy. They just don't have insight into their issue. And so, you know, somebody with BDD may have this big bump on their nose, and to your eye, it may look like, a little bump, or a, they may have a little bump on their nose. Your eye may look like a little bump, no big deal, but to them, that bump right. is the size of Mount Rushmore. Right. And they cannot understand why you or I can't see it and see how horrible and hideous they look when they don't. And, 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 and one of the jobs as a plastic surgeon is to try to discern whether our patients have that. And if they do, don't operate on them and try to encourage them to seek counseling. Exactly. It sounded to me... I mean, I, I thought some of my stories on here were crazy, but this one takes the cake <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but it sounded yeah. to, yeah, it sounded to me like she wanted to support her habit almost. And she was trying to get more funds to support her habit, you know, which was yeah. like, yeah. There was a Change. question of how much, as, as time goes by, and I wrote about this in my book, there's a question that I wonder of how much of it was an act. Because she was an actress back in the day. And, oh, and was it that she saw this young, naive, nice surgeon and thought, hey, you know what? Let me take advantage of this guy. Because in the end, you know, she had her surgery. I, like, what I paid her for was more than what she technically paid for her surgery. I've never done that since then because I think I'm wise to that. Like, but at the time, it was just so scary and I was so young and naive and you know, I didn't know what else to do, but there, I do wonder now, they, they, you know, an interesting kind of uh, epilogue to that is I, so after that, I beat myself up for days afterwards. Cause I just wonder like, am I just a crappy doctor? Like, what did I do to this woman to, to make her so angry? I blame myself. I really did. And I got a call from my staff one day as I'm driving back from the hospital. And I said, this patient's mom is on the phone and I go, oh no. And they say, she says that her daughter is suicidal. So now I'm thinking, oh my God, like, am I that bad of a doctor that I caused this, my patient to want to kill herself? Like what? 
And, and for me, you know, number one, I'm thinking like, oh my God, like what if she does that? How horrible. And then number two is beating myself up over it of like, I caused this. So I get back to my office and I call her mom. And I know at that point as a physician that somebody is suicidal, what do you have to do? You have to call the police. Like you gotta get them in a hospital and get them protected, you know? Yeah. So I call her mom and I say, and I say, you know, I, I understand your daughter is suicidal. And she goes, yeah, she is because of what you did to her. And I said, you need to call the police immediately and have them pick her up and bring her to a hospital. And she goes, what are you talking about? And I said, if she's suicidal, she needs to go to a hospital. We need to protect her. And she goes, she starts laughing. And she goes, oh, no, no, that's a figure of speech. She needs more money to pay for all the, all the garbage that you did to her. What? So her mom calls me up to try to shake me down for more money. <laughs> oh, my God. The mom was in on the scheme, too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, and it's just one of the stories. From my, but there's a lot more. As a young plastic surgeon, you go through quite a bit. Uh, oh, as goodness. You're, as you're getting into this, this field. So how did you get over that hump and realizing that you're not a bad doctor? She just had some issues. Um, I tell you, one thing that was a, a big, if you have time for a story, I'd love to tell you one of the things that really pulled me out. So I, you know, this was a, that was a cosmetic operation. And, and as a young plastic surgeon, you do cosmetics and reconstructive. And uh, shortly, and I really, I lost my confidence and I hit rock bottom. And really, I thought about leaving medicine after this woman because I'm like, well, what kind of what kind of doctor am I? Like, oh my gosh, like I'm a failure. And I get this call from the hospital because uh, I was on call, and I said, we've got this woman. She's in her 70s. She had open heart surgery, and she's got a horrible infected sternum, and she needs it reconstructed. Um, so what it is basically, when when you do open heart surgery, the the surgeon cuts the sternum, the breastbone, in half as a way to get to the heart. And then once the surgery is done, they put the breastbone back together and then they wire it together to allow the bone to heal. Well, when the bone doesn't heal, the whole thing gets infected and the bone literally turns to like jelly and it falls apart. And that was what was happening to this poor woman. So they call me in to see her and I see that she indeed has this horrible thing going on. So I bring her to surgery and uh, I remove all the infected bone and I move muscles to basically fill in the gap. That's how we, we move muscles there, bring in blood supply to heal and get rid of the infection. The surgery took about six hours, went very smoothly. And for the next two weeks, I would see her every day. Uh, actually, next six weeks, I'm sorry, I would see her every single day and make sure she's doing fine. And she went from being in the ICU to getting into a regular room and was ready to finally go into a rehab center um, where after that, then I would just see her in my office. Well, I was working late one night, and I didn't end up seeing her that night and um, because I was running so late. And I thought, I'll just go see her first thing in the morning. And I, and I get there hot to the hospital first thing in the morning, and she's not in her room. So I look her up on the computer, and I see she's transferred to the ICU. Now, at this time, Avi, I told you, I was at the bottom of the barrel. Like, I really had hit rock bottom. And the first thought in my mind is, I missed seeing her one night. What did I do to cause this? You know, And it's like... It must have been something that I did. Maybe her chest fell apart. You know, it, it's, it's, I'm sure this is my fault. So I go running to the ICU to see what happened to my patient. And I see her, she's on the ventilator, and I look at her chest, and everything looks perfect in her chest. And I'm not proud of it, but I did sigh. There's a tiny bit of relief in my head at that point, and I'm not proud of that, but that it wasn't necessarily my fault. Well, it turns out that she had a massive heart attack that night. And I talk to the family and they say, they, you know, the, the doctors say that she's going to die, that it's, that this is over. And I, you know, I feel bad. And I said, look, you know, 
I'm the you know, there's nothing else I can do here. And so I don't know what else to do. I'm standing there with my patient. I'd seen her, you know, I've been taking care of her for over six weeks, every single day. And so the only thing I could think of is to hold her hand and to sit down with her and hold her hand for a little while. So then for the next two weeks, that's what I would do every day. Just come in and hold her hand and maybe say a silent prayer. And, um, and uh, every day they would tell me that she's going to die. Like it's just, it's imminent, you know, and we're, they're just waiting. So one day I come in and uh, I put my hand down. To, I, I go to grab her hand and her hand moves towards mine. It's kind of odd, you know, because she's still on the ventilator. Her eyes are closed. There's no evidence that she's waking up or anything. Right. And the next, and the next day I walk in. And holy crap, Abby, she's sitting up in her bed, off the ventilator, smiling at me. And I go, look at you. I go, oh my God. I go, everybody said that you were not going to survive. And she goes, I guess I'm not dead yet. <laughs> and, and I go, wow. I go, you're going to make it. And she goes, Dr. I need to tell you something. And I said, well, what is that? And she goes, I knew. And I said, you knew you were going to survive? You knew what? And she goes, I knew every day you came in to see me and you came in and held my hand. And she said, it made all the difference for me. And I go, really? Like, I didn't even know that she was awake for that. And she said, and she said three words this day that I remember. She said, you saved me. And, and at that time, with where I was in my practice, I told her, you know what? You saved me too. And that was really the starting point of where my practice changed and things changed and, and, and I came out of that and, and got to now where I am now. So, so that was one of the big wow. things. You, know, you, you have these traumas as a young physician that you think like you're the only one going through it, but there are other people who have gone through similar things. And it's those patients whose lives that you touch, not the ones obviously that you fail, uh, who help bring you through those types of tough times. Right. That, that is such a heartwarming, such an amazing story. And it, it shows your character as a, a doctor. You know, you really care about your patients, which is awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're here to do, you know, and that's, that's this whole idea of a modern surgeon is like, it's not the old fashioned doctors of yesterday that lord over their patients. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, we're, we're here to help people. And, and that's, we're just, we're part of that healthcare team, like, like the nurses, the PAs, the support staff, you know, we all work together for that. Do you still keep in contact with her? Oh, no, this was many, many years ago. And, and Oh, that's um, right. You said yeah, she so was she's elderly. healed. <laughs> and yeah, she's healed. Well, hopefully she's still alive. <laughs> no, I mean, that's the one thing as a plastic surgeon is that, you know, I treat people, I try to get them better. And yeah, we do have some long-term patients who come in and out. But, you know, plastics, they're the ones who get the laser treatments and stuff like that. I don't want a long-term surgery patient. I don't want to keep operating on people. The idea is to have the least amount of surgery necessary to make sure that to, to get you happy. Exactly. So what inspired you to write the book, Playing God? So the book was inspired just by this whole idea that, that um, there is a difference in the modern surgeon today than there is in the old-fashioned surgeon of yesterday. So I call it the evolution of a modern surgeon. And this idea that uh, the doctors and surgeons are playing God you know, there is this God mentality among surgeons that they think that they're the ones who are, you know, in charge here and, and they treat other, you know, people, some of them, you know, these old school surgeons treat other people as underlings and that they're really the ones who are God in that situation. And I wrote that because I, I think that the, the truth is quite the opposite, you know, as a surgeon as a, and as a successful surgeon, I don't play God. I need God. Like 
I can't do this on my own. And there are stories in the book that exemplify just, just how that is. And there are times where, you know, I've done some operations and I share some stories in the book where I know that I'm not there by myself, you know, and I'm, I'm not talking about my support staff, but I know that there's a higher power up there who's with me in some of these situations where, you know, you look at it and then on paper, like this is surgery is not going to work. This patient is not going to do well. Yet they do, you know, yet there are those times that they do. And you know that, that it's not because of what I did, but it's because of somebody else up there intervening on, on our behalf. Uh, and so that's why I, I wrote it. And that's what, where the title comes from. I think that's amazing. I can't wait to read the full book and um, to get a copy, feel free to send. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to um, reading that. I love reading books. Um, is there any advice for women who are 20s and 30s and um, they're really comparing themselves to other people, which I see a lot of. I don't personally do that, but I see a lot of people doing that considering plastic surgery. What advice would you give to them? My advice would be, uh, number one, would be to enjoy um, you, how you look and feel about yourself today. Because, you know, I'm in my 40s, and I would love, and, and I talk to all my patients, they would love to, to look like they did back in their 20s. And, and no, none of us really appreciate how good we look and we feel when we're in our 20s. So the first thing is smell the roses, be happy you are young because it changes. Uh, and then the second thing is, is, Take good care of yourself. Do the things that, that you recommend, Avi, you know, with using good skincare and eating the right foods. You know, that really is the best way to set yourself up for looking and feeling great through the rest of your life. Awesome advice. Awesome holistic advice. Well, Dr. Yoon, I thank you so, so much for being on the show. I'm happy to have met you. This was such a fun interview. Thank you so much, Avi. It's, a, uh, it's definitely a pleasure to be on with you. That was such a fun interview. His stories definitely take the cake <laughs> over some of my stories. I cannot get over that woman he was talking about. That was just horrendous. Um, but anyway, if you would like to get Dr. Yoon's book, Playing God, you can visit um, Amazon.com, type in Playing God, and you can purchase that book to hear more about that. If you'd like to work with me for holistic health coaching, it's www.avishiel.com slash contact. I will have a special guest that's in my health coaching practice sharing her very unique experience in the next episodes and I hope you enjoyed this episode I did it was very very fun and have an unfiltered day see you next week